Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. James F. McGrath. I don't know how often people give you the F, but you know, we're talking, you, you put a book out, you're in your uh, office, you're, the background is lined with, with books, tomes, if you will, there at Butler University in Indianapolis. Thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, it's a pleasure. My, my dad was James McGrath, went by Jim. So that's, it's, it's all his fault that I've uh, pretty much always used the middle initial and that I've gone by James rather than Jim because it seems like there's always been somebody else who got to Jim first. It's your fault, Dad. You forced his hand. You were We were both at Theology Beer Camp back in October. You were wearing a Star Trek, uh, I guess, uniform for, for some significant percentage of the time. So mm-hmm. if people were there and don't know, oh, did I see James walking around? If you saw yeah. that yellow uh, Star Trek uniform, then you saw James. Yeah, I was talking about theology and Star Trek and Doctor Who. So I was right. wearing a Starfleet uniform, Captain Pike from uh, Strange New Worlds and Discovery, and got up and said, you know, this isn't quite balanced for the topic, right? And then pulled out the long fourth Doctor scarf and uh, put that on as well for at least the duration of the talk. So Love it. So I'm not really known for Bible episodes. It's not... Certainly not my forte. I think, if anything, I'm known for being the psychologist in training and kind of bringing that lens to most topics. However, I am noticing in myself 
a resurgence of interest in the Bible, kind of almost like a tentative one, just because, you know, was trained so thoroughly uh, to read and think about and talk about it a certain way, uh, a way that I no longer find convincing or tenable. And it's it's kind of surprised me how long it's taken uh, to kind of work my way back to some alternate approach. Perhaps if I actually devoted more time, it would happen more quickly. But because of that, I will often ask listeners of this show when I have someone on to talk about the Bible specifically, like, hey, what are you guys wondering about the text? In this case, I asked about the New Testament and kind of a couple themes emerged, which then you and I emailed a little bit. And now that's been put into a little bit of a a format. So I'm not going to be quoting any listeners directly, but they informed the sort of two or three main topics that we're going to sort of snake our way through. And the first one, and and I'll admit, this is something I have spent a lot of time thinking about myself, is there really is this sense, Paul really seems to think that this thing is wrapping up pretty soon here. And, uh, you know, the whatever judgment day, the day of the Lord, whatever you want to call it, the end of the world, not sure he would think of it quite that way, but there's something big coming. This is why people don't necessarily need to get married. Um, it's like there's not a lot of time here. The, this thing that happened with Jesus, this is letting us know that, that things are wrapping up in some way or, or are changing in some real radical way. And then, like, that didn't happen. <laughs> We're still here. And those of us with, like, end times trauma, myself included, we can be even particularly both interested and frustrated by that topic because – it's led so many modern people or people during our lifetimes to also just kind of latch onto that language quite straightforwardly and assume that the end was coming. I've, I've covered the Jesus movement quite a bit on the show. So let's let's start there. Where, where should we start? We get Paul before we get the Gospels, right? So maybe we start with Paul. Because Paul is writing earlier than the Gospels, it's maybe even clearer there that there's a sense of of imminent expectation, right? Something is going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And one of the things that you often don't get if you come through a a so-called Bible-believing form of Christianity is actually reading large chunks of the Bible and making sense of them as a whole, right? And so if we look at something like Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, quite possibly our earliest piece of Christian literature. There's debate about whether Galatians or 1 Thessalonians is earliest, but one of those two most experts would say, is Paul's earliest letter. And if Paul wrote before the Gospels, then that would be our earliest uh, Christian source. And roughly, like what I just looked up, like maybe 15-ish years after Christ's death and resurrection, sort of like that? Something like that. Yeah, that sounds about right. And so clearly the storytelling that's going on all along the way, Paul has as sources of information, right? He was opposed to this movement and then had some sort of turnaround, And he mentions having relatives that were part of the movement before he was. And so some of what's in the Gospels reflects that tradition of Christian storytelling. Paul doesn't introduce Jesus when he writes to people, right? And so he assumes that his recipients know who he's talking about, right? He's not writing to introduce people to this. It's not a first presentation. And so it's not surprising that he doesn't go into a lot of detail retelling the story, uh, yeah, writing, you know, he couldn't just shoot off an email, you know, or he might have included a few more details. But then again, I think writing, despite the fact that it can go quicker and easier, is still getting shorter and shorter. <laughs> yeah, well, it just that, that's actually kind of helpful there. So 
the Gospels don't get written until what Mark is at the earliest around 70 AD, so 40-ish years after. Is that still kind of the consensus? Quite possibly. I mean, there's debate about it. On the one hand, there are some things in the Gospel of Mark that seem to reflect uh, like some major crises that were going on sort of around the, the 40s. So some of the material in it seems like it was shaped by earlier concerns. Okay. And as we talk about the expectation of the end and things like that, we'll get to passages like Mark 13, right? That's talking about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and things like that. There's this reference to, you know, some abominating sacrilege, you know, some abomination of desolations, you know, desolating sacrilege, standing where it should not be. And often that's thought to reflect the concern that people had in that period when the emperor known as Caligula was quite determined to have his statue set up in the temple in Jerusalem. And a lot of people were worried and a lot of people thought, okay, that's going to bring about the end. Mm. And again, knowledge of the broader Bible and biblical tradition, you know, you have a lot of people miss that that's actually alluding to something in the book of Daniel that refers to things that happened in the era of like the Maccabean revolt. Uh, there was this Syrian king, Antiochus, who had rededicated the temple to Zeus Olympus and sacrificed a pig on the altar and things like that. Yeah. And the books of the Maccabees and the book of Daniel use that phrase, right? And so Mark 13, whether you think it's Jesus speaking, whether you think it's the gospel author inventing stuff, or you think it's a combination of the two, right? And perhaps impossible to separate those sure. threads. It's it's alluding to that and saying something like that is going to happen again, right? And so what fits the bill in terms of that expectation? It's not really the destruction of the temple in 70, right? I mean, it's not the same kind of thing as what they're expecting. And so uh, James Crossley has made a strong case for situating the Gospel of Mark as early as that, uh, most scholars are not persuaded. And the, the challenge is that we have earlier stuff in texts like Gospels, right, where stuff that's been shaped by earlier times and the process of storytelling. And so the fact that something reflects an earlier context, or seems to, doesn't necessarily tell us that that's when this text as a whole was written. Right. And the and so, editing process can take, you know, decades yeah. uh, to put things together, certainly that's believed to have happened with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But my, my point there is just that like Paul and the churches 10, 20 years after Jesus, they're not, they're not circulating the gospels because if you're a part of that church, like you, you were there or your cousin was there or the person who led you to Christ was certainly there or, or something like that. So Paul's not, filling all those gaps in it's only later as people start dying which is relevant to this question of like okay people are dying and some of the kids don't actually know what we're talking about so somebody's got to like clarify this stuff right so paul's early letters are in a time before that sort of like oh there's generational you know churn here and we're maybe losing some of this tradition right he's he's yeah. writing before that time yeah. And so it's quite likely that that those two things that we've been talking about are sort of combined to explain why nobody's writing this. We 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 get to writing stuff down very, very quickly because we're part of a culture that in which writing is easy. Right. We have tools for right. writing to make it easier. And most people are literate uh, to a, a very large extent that was yeah. 
was very much the exception in the ancient world, right? And so if you want something to be remembered, writing it down is useful for a small handful of people. But for the majority of people, what you want to do is tell the story and tell it over and over again and make sure that people have heard it. And and so that's the focus. It's almost like uh, maybe akin to in our day, certain academics before they die will try and make like a magnum opus, like a, a 700 page book uh, summarizing kind of all the stuff they've worked on. I think about Robert Bella's uh, religion and human evolution before he passed. But before that, like you don't need to do that. Like you've Mm -hmm. got your YouTube videos and you've got your, your podcasts or your, you know, just you teach your classes and people come in person or over zoom or something. And like, that's akin to the oral tradition and passing on of things and liturgical practices of, of the early churches and and they're doing all of that. And it's only when time – you're like, you know what? There should be a record of this. It's Is that maybe a way of thinking about when finally someone would need to write something down? Because it's like we don't need it in the in the everyday thing. Maybe Paul's letters are less that way because those were circulated, right, in kind of like a, a lecture might be done on, on a circuit. Yeah. So how widely Paul's letters circulated – in the very earliest period, it's harder to say. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get the sense that they start to circulate, that churches sort of share them and say, oh, you might find this interesting. You might appreciate a copy of this. Yeah. Um, nothing very formal early on. And the fact that Paul and others, you know, the, the majority view, maybe the view of everybody, at least initially, was that the end is near in some dramatic sense. Yeah. Why, you know, there's no concern to make records for the long sure. term. Right? Yeah. And so... The impression we get from First Thessalonians, right, he ad- turns at one point to addressing what happens if somebody dies and this uh, reappearance of Jesus and final judgment, all that's the resurrection have not happened yet. Do they miss out? And the very fact that you could skip that, I think, tells us a lot, right? The fact that it didn't occur to him, apparently, to say, oh, yeah, and, you know, here's what happens if, you know, because... Yeah, you know, could be it's it's expected soon, and so it's not really you know oh what happens when people die before that right, and so that gives us a sense of just the extent to, to which the expectation is that this is going to be not just soon but really soon right. It's also so interesting how that has a different than valence, a different focus yeah. to what so many of us were raised with, which was almost like the number one role of a Christian theology for certain churches and communities many of my listeners would have experienced this was to lay out a roadmap for what happens when you die. That's number one. Yeah. And then like how to act on earth and stuff like that is number two and, and below. It's so interesting. Like, it, you know, of course it's only like a 15, 20 year period of time we're talking about here very early on, but that just was like, they're like, we're not even worried about that at all. Right. And that's, yeah. that's so interesting. If you, have any kind of you know real substantive contact with the kind of you know conservative evangelicalism that puts a lot of emphasis on the end times and stuff like that, then you're used to playing fast and loose with the term soon, right? Mm-hmm. Soon is you know just as true now as it was then. And so the meaning of soon for them, right, for the people who actually wrote it and first read it in the pages and heard it read aloud is essentially emptied of all meaning, right? You know, um, I mean, it wasn't soon for them, but it becomes this thing that, you know, soon means it could be any time, not 
that's actually soon, right? But they, and so, so here's the the rub yeah. is that like Paul was wrong, right? And and whatever whether Jesus said, and then I think the the, the scarier thing is whether Jesus said it or it's in the words of the gospel writer and we take that to be inspired by the Holy spirit uh, and then committed to the gospels. Like that, that person was also wrong and you know, or were they, I, you know, there are ways out, but I think that's kind of the, that's the elephant in the room, especially for more conservative folks. Yeah. And I, I do want to get to what Paul actually says, you know, and there's sure. some interesting stuff, there, but I think it might actually be helpful to share a little bit of my own journey, which played a, a sort of a crucial role, this particular issue. Oh, yeah. Um, Let's get it. I mean, I, I came to a, a personal faith, you know, in a, a an evangelical context in my teens. And pretty soon after that, you know, there's a pamphlet circulating, you know, 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. Oh, yes. Um, and stuff like that. And so that was a formative influence on me. Yeah. Um, and it was discovering that, you know, the book of Revelation, you know, talks about, you know, the seven heads of the beast, you know, correspond to seven hills, which anyone then would have understood to mean Rome, and also corresponds to seven rulers, five of whom have fallen, one now is, and one is yet to come. Right. And if that one now is doesn't apply to the time when this author is writing and the people in Asia Minor are receiving this and reading it, then when does it, first of all, when does it apply to? Is it, you know, suddenly, you know, Tim LaHaye writes the book and then suddenly it's like, you know, yeah. the present tense kicks in. Right. But it also makes this text a really mean prank. And I think I say this in the book, a really mean prank on the churches of Asia Minor, right? Sent to them. It's like, calculate the number. They might write back and say, here's what we think. And it's like, no, it's, you know, and then you go through the list. Ronald Reagan, Gorbachev, Barack Obama, yeah. you know, and the, <laughs> the list goes on and on back through history of yeah. people they tried to identify it with. But it is emptied of all meaning for its original audience. And Oh, interesting. Because, yeah, because people might not remember that Revelation starts with a letter, seven letters to seven churches, right? Like, is that, is that the number? Yeah. And I would actually say it's, it basically is one letter to seven churches. Mm. Right? There's one, one letter, letter to seven churches. Yeah. And yeah. then there are things that are addressed to them. So even though it's a really weird letter, I mean, it's a really weird anything, right? <laughs> the book yeah. of Revelation. And, but one of the genres of this is letter, right? And letter implies, if you know anything about letters, um, and almost everybody does, there's some relevance to the people you're sending it to, right? And they're supposed to understand something. So are you saying that what you kind of figured out and started piquing your interest into more of a scholarly approach is going, hey, I think we're if we if we focus so much on the sort of prophetic, you know, guesses or uh, prophecies, not in the sense of, uh, you know, Old Testament prophets who are calling power to account, but like making predictions if we focus so much on the predictive nature of the second the latter two-thirds or three-quarters of the book of revelation we're like aren't we missing like would this have all just been like a farce to the people it was originally mailed to you know not mailed to yeah. uh travel you know given to obviously didn't have the postal service back then yeah 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 Right. And that's also something that people forget. Right. You know, and we might find our ways uh, to talking a bit more about that, that you don't have a postal service. And so, you know, when letters are sent, they're sent through someone. Right. Yeah. And so uh, often a letter above all else authorized the person that was bringing it right to sort of speak on behalf of that 
uh, the person who sent it. Uh, they would fill in things, right? You didn't put everything in writing necessarily. And so that's part of the picture. I think I'm like a lot of people who got into the academic study of the Bible as an expression of our faith. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly it turns out the Bible is not what your faith tradition uh, had led you to believe it is. And so another thing that was very helpful was realizing that, you know, when I'd say, well, you know, where it says this, that, or the other, it doesn't really mean that. I was actually basically twisting the words of the Bible to defend my doctrine about the Bible from the Bible. <laughs> oh, wow. Excerpt and, that. Okay. There's a, there's, there's your audio clip for the episode. There you go. That's well, funny. Well, yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, it undermines any pretense that the Bible is actually your ultimate authority, right? Because the Bible is actually being actively prevented from challenging your doctrine about the Bible. And realizing that that was kind of inherently self-defeating and problematic was also a key moment. That is, I, I just kind of want to, I want to linger there for a minute. That is yeah. one of the, that might join the ranks of like the, the two clearest things I've heard expressed about <laughs> studying the text. The The other one, uh, which I think we will get to, you know, w uh, about multivocality, that yeah. the fact that the Bible disagrees with itself in point of view, uh, in in worldview, in perspective on certain questions, which really came to the fore for me when I read Bible Made Impossible by Christian Smith, the mm -hmm. sociologist. And he yeah. he just sort of makes the argument of like, if this is a puzzle that fits together, why do we have a thousand different puzzles? Yeah. You know, like it, it just clearly doesn't. And therefore, people will pick up on, you know, one emphasis or another to the exclusion of the other one because the pieces don't fit. It's it's not a uh, – there is no seamless hole you can make out of it. And then I think joining those ranks is, is your idea that, like, what I found myself doing was distorting the Bible to uphold my doctrine of Christianity, which is about how to read the Bible. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, one one you know pretty clear example, I think, is, you know, you'll often hear in a, a conservative, even an inerrantist context that, you know, one of the genealogies in the New Testament is Joseph's and the other is Mary's or something like that. And in fact, both of them go to Joseph. Right. But they disagree. Right. Yeah. And the reason for claiming that is to say that they're both true. But you're actually changing. You're, you're denying what the text actually says in order to claim that the text is true. And so what's the authority? Is it your doctrine that says the Bible must always, you know, it's not allowed to contradict itself? Or is it the Bible that presents these two genealogies, both of which claim to be that of Joseph? Right? Yep. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the rub. That's why this podcast exists. So anyway, we can. we So, yeah. OK, go on. So, yeah. No. So, I mean, so I I got into the academic study, you know, and this as an undergrad, I'm already starting to experience some of this. My choice of doctoral topic was trying to deter, being determined to figure out some of this. And so, you know, take the four gospels, a certain type of background will lead you to expect that they're all going to be, you know, pretty much saying the same thing. And then you take an academic course on the gospel of John and it's like, nope, this one is weird. It's yeah. different. And so my first book was actually on that question. Why is the gospel of John so different? Right. It's about how Jesus is depicted in the gospel of John. So I spent a fair amount of time then kind of being like, well, I'm a Christian too. I just don't do, you know, and sort of apologizing for having moved away from that kind of inheritance framework. And then again, st he starts out with the whole thing of the nearness of the end, uh, but was reading a great book that I highly recommend by Keith Ward uh, called What the Bible Really Teaches. 
right? So, I mean, he's an Oxford philosopher. You yeah, know, I people, love Keith, yeah. You know, but he's written something about the Bible, and he starts off with the nearness to the end passages and says, you know, when these people say that they believe, you know, they believe everything that the Bible says, uh, they take at least the stuff that seems like it should be taken literally, literally, and that they're, you know, Bible-believing Christian. you know, it's like, they don't believe this, right? They say that soon doesn't mean soon, that, you know, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. Uh, some standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They're not saying those things are true, right? And so that was decisive for me to stop apologizing for being, you know, an open Christian who accepts biblical scholarship and to start saying, yeah, no, you know, if, if the inheritance want to apologize for trying to pretend that they are consistent biblical literalists and stuff like that, you know, I'll happily listen to their apology, but they're the ones who are, you know, and, and they have the audacity to complain that other people pick and choose and pretend yes. that they're not. Right. And if there's something that really bugs me, it's that often the media will refer to, you know, biblical literalists and things like that as though that's what they actually are. I mean, that's a marketing strategy that really needs to be just, you know, challenged globally until people get the message. Yeah, no, they're not. Right. Let's just we'll do a psychology cul-de-sac here for a minute, James. Uh, And I try to answer the question. Okay, so then why why is that so persistent and and successful? of a strategy essentially like why do people so easily fall for that you know like and and I I always I always go back to this this anecdote that that Tony Jones tells about having had lunch with John Piper and Tony asks him about the different atonement theories and John Piper's like let me stop you right there you know, you should never preach. People cannot handle five atonement theories. You got to give them one. And I and that's a, a pretty cynical, uh, yeah. perhaps, view. It is a it is a view of human nature that people can't handle the truth. It's essentially Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. Right. Yes. And um, the thing is, I think Piper is probably correct at a group psychology level. Like, I, I would say the tides of history— <laughs> would support his hypothesis maybe over Tony's that people want to know what the options are. And maybe the the failure of the emergent church could be seen as kind of like proof positive of that, that, yeah, you give people all the options and it's not going to sustain a religious community. Now, maybe time will tell. Maybe that will be different. There are things like this podcast that are able to to be successful. And, you know, you could argue this is this is bigger than most churches numerically, but it's not the same to sustain a podcast as it is to sustain a community of of thousands of people coming to a building week after week and paying a budget and salaries and all that stuff. You know, so I I don't know. I, I think that that but that's where I go to psychology then and I'm trying to answer it. There, I'm curious what you think about that whole question. I, I also think it's interesting and hope that you know, we might explore or at least touch on just now this question of whether online community, you know, is actually something that is the direction that you know Christianity is headed. Hmm. Because you know, I think one reason why people are not going to gathering in churches is the simple fact that it used to be necessary to gather in one place to listen to somebody speak who had expertise and something. And now you can go online you can listen and you can probably find some, you know, I mean, can't all be great preachers. And so there's a reasonable chance you can find someone online who is a more, you know, more gifted uh, with regard to sure. oratorical skills than the person in your local congregation. And so 
uh, have actually been thinking a lot about you know the future of the church and what this means because it's it's very much parallel to the question of you know that we wrestle with in higher education right what's the role of in-person learning and creating these communities that are meeting face to face to do this thing what's the role of the online thing my next book uh after the John the Baptist ones that are going to be the next books but after that I have something on you know, where to go after deconstruction and part of it you know focuses on this question of you know that you know we need community uh but community doesn't necessarily need to look like it has in the past and online community certainly can at least be part of that uh but you know no online constituency will ever you know sort of sway a local board of education or something like that you know you got to show up in person right and so we need in person right. community uh for a lot of reasons i'm sure as a psychologist you could fill in on that more yeah there's just a lot that goes on between right. people that are inhabiting the same physical space you have yeah. You know, micro expressions, just the the, yeah. the depth of communication and feeling is higher. But you could do a thing where, you know, I like I could plausibly get together with a, a couple collaborators and we could have a weekly 30 minute episode that has some teaching and a little bit of liturgy in it. Yeah. And then people anywhere get five or six people together, you know, rub, yeah. rub some sticks together and have church, you know, yeah. do the yeah. Eucharist or, or whatever. But you could yeah. imagine something like that yeah. being fairly straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. And whether that will be, you know, at least a major part of the church's future, it's, you know, remains to be seen. Yeah. Interesting. But but I think there is a, an element of self-fulfilling prophecy in what, you know, John Piper was saying there, because it's the preaching in a lot of churches, conservative churches, that tells you that the Bible is this simplistic thing that gives all the answers and provides a straightforward this, that, and the other. And right. then when people encounter complexity, you know, why can't they handle it? Because they've been told that this is not the case, right? And they've been set up to have a crisis of faith when they encounter that complexity, because that complexity is at odds with what they were told about the Bible and their faith thus far. Well, it's chicken egg because, you know, like there's this meme going around that I, there's like versions of it that are, you know, funny and there's there's various slight versions, but it's like, why are you so unhappy? And it's like, I have a Stone Age, like I have a mind that <laughs> evolved to like, run around the forest with a hundred other people and I'm trying to take in, you know, global geopolitics and, you know, like all. So there's, there's some like inherent limitation and, and I've, I've come to, okay, I'll, I'll end this cul-de-sac here and get us back to the Bible, but I've come to really, you know, the, the sort of like the, the trope, the joke of the non-denominational pastor who has like a three point alliterated, you know, sermon outline of like, you gotta be trustworthy. You gotta tune in and you gotta have total commitment. Like that, that is like such a joke now. Uh, but at the same time, I'm like, realistically how much can people take away from yeah. one talk right. and you know i i actually prefer homilies to sermons for that reason they're half as long and they they have sort of fewer ambitions for people to like come out retaining information so that there's some there's something where the form of protestant preaching even even in conservative churches has gotten bloated for for like the capacity of individuals to retain stuff yeah. So mm -hmm. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, in the book, I explained that, you know, uh, the, the, the thing that made me want to write a book like this for a really long time. And then Erdman's approached me basically saying, you know, we'd, we'd like you to write for us and here's our idea. And I was like, 
oh my gosh, that's this thing I really want to write yeah, about. Yeah, that's it great. Was, it was just wonderful. Um, doesn't doesn't always happen, but um, no. uh, even if it never happens again, I'm glad it happened this once. Yeah. But I studied in the UK, and it, when I was working on my doctorate, got an invitation to give a talk to what are known as sixth form students. So students who are working on the British equivalent of what we'd call like AP exams in the US. Uh, so students who are going to university always take these. And because there's no separation of church and state there, you can do religious studies at that level. And so uh, the invitation was to give a talk on my research, right, for that sort of audience. And so teenagers in the UK. And so I asked about, you know, what kinds of things they cover. So I understand the level to pitch it and things like that and get some past exams to give me an idea. And they're doing the synoptic problem. In other words, how the gospels relate to one another. They're doing questions of authorship and date and all the, and, you know, source criticism and all these things. And I was like, you can spend your whole life in a church and never encounter this stuff. And yet British teenagers are thought to be capable of handling this. Mm. There's a disconnect. Yeah. And in saying that some pastors tell people that, you know, this kind of stuff is bad, right? And suggesting that there's anything, you know, challenging in understanding the Bible is bad or stuff like that. I don't fault the rest of pastors and the ministers and priests and others for not preaching the synoptic problem, right? You know, or source criticism. It's like, it's not good sermon material. It doesn't right? preach, no. Yeah, it doesn't preach. Um, and often it's in the background of their preaching, but to get to it in any kind of depth, you'd have to explain it. And then you've just taken up time from your sermon and it's not, you know. Yeah. And most Sunday school teachers have never covered this stuff, right? And so I'm not really trying to blame anyone for not covering this, but I've long thought that people can handle it. And that while we do have a, a natural craving for you know simple answers when they're available, uh, we also can learn to cope with complexity if that desire for simple answers is not pandered to, at least in more instances than we sometimes do. And so tried to write a book that will introduce the kinds of things you cover in an intro course to the New Testament and to do it in a way that doesn't require that you actually would find something like source criticism or redaction criticism interesting because lots of people would see that and say, oh, clearly this book is not for me because I don't know what those are and they don't sound interesting, right? Whereas my experience in teaching um, in the core curriculum at Butler and in other places, teaching Sunday school in my church, is that you know, if you start with the text and then you take a close look and then you ask, you know, okay, so why is, you know, this seems a little puzzling. Why might that be, you know, and then you say, so if we know this from the wider literary context and know that this was the custom or that this was this phrase had these connotations we could understand that if we put these gospels in parallel you know students hey how do you explain that matthew mark and luke they're similar here and yet very different and then you come along with the you know so here's what scholars have suggested and suddenly it's not threatening it's right. actually helping you understand and appreciate the text better and whether you agree with this or that scholarly conclusion isn't the point. The point is recognizing that this thing is good faith effort, sometimes literally good faith, but at least metaphorically good faith effort to <laughs> make sense of what we actually find in the text, which calls totally. out for explanations and raises these questions. No, you're you're right. And, and I will say, if there's anything that's kind of shifting my perspective on this question, it's doing more therapy with clients yeah. and being, I would say, increasingly convinced by some some basic kind of existential psychology perspective, by which I just mean 
the, the caveat I will say is for people of a certain level of sort of intellectual capacity, I think under a certain threshold, it doesn't for what it just seems to not really apply as much. But over some threshold, you know, maybe, I don't know, 70 percent put to put a number on it, 70 percent of people or, or more that actually the deepest kind of human life and the, the deepest and richest experience exists on the other side of getting past some more childish and simplistic views on things and, and kind of leaning into and accepting the inherent uncertainty of life and sort of persisting uh, regardless, you know, like that, that would be, and that's a very, that's a very simple way of describing the way that, that for instance, Soren Kierkegaard, the, the father of existentialism talks about faith. There are these paradoxes, there are these unresolvable issues. And yet, nevertheless, you persist in, in a life of faith um, with a direct, you know, purpose and directionality and, and, and commitment. And so I, I'm coming around to that. Those two things are kind of intention for me, that that's true. And that I, I see that with my clients, I see it in my own life. And on the other hand, there are, there do seem to be these kind of hard limits for what most people can process in any given period of time. Uh, and I'm, you know, kind of the, the, the long-term program for me is sort of, how do I bring those together? Like, is there a way to communicate very clearly and memorably about complex issues without treating people like children? Yeah. Uh, that, and, and, and that could be seen in one way as kind of my life's, my life's work, but. And it's arguable that that's what Jesus was doing, right? I mean, some of these stories. Okay. Take us home. Of, do it. Right? Go there. Right. We've got, I mean, we've got these stories and oftentimes, you know, we've had oversimplified versions of them where we think that these just, you know, very trite, you know, simple tales, but in actual fact, you start taking a look at them and it's like, Oh, there, wait, there's more to this than I realized. You mean Jesus parables, right? Is yeah. that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 I think, you know, for the most part, most people cope with the fact that, you know, they get something at the sort of kindergarten, preschool and kindergarten level. And by some point in middle school, it's getting a little bit more complicated. You go on and it gets more complicated. And also the fact that for most of us, all areas but one, and maybe all of those areas, we will stop going as far as it's possible to go. Right. And so, one thing that worries me as an academic uh, in our day and age is the the fact that there's misinformation. There's always been misinformation, but the fact that people aren't, you know, don't recognize that we all depend on others who have more expertise than we do in areas in which we're not experts, right? Uh, the free flow of information has led some people to think that, that you can just Google it and, you know, you somehow become an expert suddenly, right? It can be hit or miss, you know, if you are just blindly clicking on things and not, you know, using it discerningly. But even if you look closely, some stuff that's out there is sort of designed to mislead you and to look like it's, you know, serious academic work when in fact it might not be. And so I've shifted in recent years from focusing on content that students might or might not remember to you know, how do you find a reliable source, right? What kind of expertise do you want to consider? Why do you not just look to one person? who has a PhD in a relevant subject, right? Because, you know, even with a PhD, you can be wrong. People with PhDs not only can disagree, but you know, we're, we're pretty much required to as part of our jobs, right? Trained the only way to get published is to <laughs> yeah. right, try out some yeah. new idea, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's, well, let's bring it back to, uh, let's use that trying out new ideas as a way of, you know, and disagreement as a way of bringing this back to the text. So we've got yeah. this early expectation in Paul, yeah. this, this shit's wrapping up soon. 
Okay. And then we've got some content that ends up in the gospels from anywhere from 40 AD, 10 years after Christ to what at the latest 110 or something like that. So we've got like this 70 year period of which we get other content in the gospels. Talk about how the gospel writers deal with this idea of, you know, this some in this generation will not pass away. That's a, that's words we have in Jesus's mouth. Uh, and then we've got Paul, you know, we who are alive now, like get married if you have to have sex, but this thing's ending soon. Yeah. So, and I'm glad you mentioned that phrase, you know, cause I wasn't sure if I couldn't remember if I mentioned that in first Thessalonians, Paul says, you know, we who are alive, you know, it, it's not necessarily, I am sure that I will be, but we, you know, there's, you know, it's, it's our generation, right? It's Some people here my... are going to see this happen, yeah. whether it's me or not. Right. Yeah. 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 And that's the impression we get in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew in particular, right, which are thought to be the earliest. Uh, Mark 13 has uh, this language about the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem and followed by the end. And of course, apocalyptic literature regularly talks about stuff that's going to happen very soon and is happening now and then jumps to the end. And probably genuinely each author thinks that probably the end will come. But the possibility that by that point, they're starting to think, mm, yeah, it, this this may be a way of saying it's something earth shattering is going to be happening without saying the earth will literally shatter. You know, it, it's not outside the realm of possibility, but there's the expectation, right? Some standing here will not taste death. And Mark's way of putting it is until they see the kingdom of God come with power, which you could then perhaps understand to mean some experience of these Christians or something. But Matthew shows how he understands it and he rewards it. Some standing here will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Right. And that's even more clearly this thing that Christians tend to call the second coming, right? What New Testament scholars call the parousia, right? The, the appearance in glory that coincides with the final judgment, final resurrection, all these things. And I remember, I think it was reading a book by my, doctoral supervisor before he was my doctoral supervisor I and mean, he was reading his what he wrote that led me there um james dg dunn uh, jimmy to his friends uh he wrote a book unity and diversity in the new testament right that's all about this thing that you're interested the multivocality yeah. um, of the new testament the fact that we have these different voices in there and in luke's equivalent of that prediction you know that's in mark 13 of the destruction of the temple and the things that lead to the end luke sort of historicize it. So it says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that its desolation is near, right? So changes what Matthew and Luke say in that regard. And then where there's a warning of like false prophets, false Christ who will come and say, I am he, Luke adds, they will say, I am he and the time is near, right? So the time is near has gone from being what the text seems to say to a sign that somebody's a false prophet, Whoa. right? And I remember when that was first pointed out to me, I was like, whoa, right? Whoa, I, that's, James, yeah. that is genuinely new information to me right here. That, that's, that's cool. Maybe you should say that, you know, A to Z of the New Testament, you know, I, I started out thinking I was writing the ABCs of New Testament study or something like that. And then people read it and they were like, no, no, no. Yeah, I, yeah, I went to seminary and there's still some stuff in here that's new to me. And so, um, or stuff that I'd forgotten completely or things like that. It's not, it's not New Testament 101, right? Yeah, there's, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it starts there, hopefully, but it does, it'll take you further, even if you've already got some background, I think.
My wife and I are just days away from the birth of our second son. And so if you are hearing this now, it means that I am currently getting no sleep and I will not be conducting any you have permission interviews for the next few weeks. Don't worry. We've already we banked a bunch of them ahead of time. So there will not be any sort of significant break in the action from your perspective uh, unless something else happens. So no big deal there. Um, and I'm not I'm not here asking for, you know, a sympathy Patreon contribution or anything like that. I'm just letting you know that this ad is going to be running for a month or two because I'm not going to want to record another one and tell you about the ber- the perks of becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Those perks include, of course, two exclusive episodes per month, not available on the main feed, at least not the whole thing on the main feed, access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only, and every episode of this podcast ad-free on the special patron feed, which comes into your email inbox once you sign up and you can add it to your regular podcast app and you can listen to all these episodes the normal ones not just the patron ones without any ads so that's why you might go to patreon.com slash dan coke and give seven bucks a month to be a part of the patreon community you might also do it mainly because of the facebook group and the resources there and the community there there's any number of reasons really why you might want to do this you might think of it as like a a a shower present for a new baby. You might just feel bad for me. And maybe you've been here uh, before. Maybe you've been here more than two times and you know just how exhausted I will be for the foreseeable future. Either way, thank you for being a regular listener of this show, whether or not you join the Patreon community. I don't really care. I'm grateful for your involvement. Thanks for listening, thinking through this stuff with me. I appreciate all the emails I get from listeners. Feel free to send those. This is getting too long for a Patreon ad, so I will end it here. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke. Our family of now four. Thanks, you. So that's the author of Luke not only sort of pushing back on this is happening very soon, but actually making the claim that this is happening very soon part and parcel of what a false messiah would or will be saying in in the future. Yeah. Which is very interesting. <laughs> I think you and uh, all of your uh, viewers will probably agree. Wow. And Yeah, it, that's interesting. Yeah. And it goes hand in hand with the fact that Luke writes a second volume that provides a pattern for this phenomenon that he mentions has started to become known as Christianity in at least some places being around for a while. And so when, you know, start of the second book, right. The knows the book of acts or the acts of the apostles. It's like, so, you know, now, you know, it's the time now when you'll restore the kingdom to Israel. It's like, it's not for you to know you're going to be my witnesses. Yeah. You know, the rest will take care of itself. You know, just don't even, don't, don't even ask about that. Okay. Right? You're saying because so, okay. A couple things to your background. Yeah. So, it, we don't know that actually the apostle Luke wrote Luke and Acts, but it is generally accepted that the same author wrote them, right? Because the the Greek yeah. is very similar, and it kind of takes it kind of takes up the narrative in mm-hmm. the same spot, right? Yeah, and all of the 
names of authors is tradition, you know, because by the yeah. time we see it appear, right, it it occurs in our manuscripts fairly early, but the sort of standardized title formats, right, the gospel according to, or the gospel according to saint, or, you know, whatever it is in each manuscript is usually consistent across them, right? I'm inclined to think that there seems to have been a lot of agreement about the names of the authors. You know, we don't have like radically divergent. Some people are saying, you know, this is, you know, the gospel of Fred instead of the gospel of Matthew or something like that, that probably authors' names were remembered. I mean, particularly Mark and Luke are not sort of eyewitnesses, not key authority figures. And so um, unlikely to have been invented. Uh, in the case of John, we have good reason to think that there may have been a John the Elder who is not the same as John the son of Zebedee. And so you know, my my own inclination is to think that, yeah, probably those were the names of the authors. And then the attempt to say that this person is the person who wrote this, you know, is probably then comes along later. Yeah. The one possible exception is the Gospel of Matthew, right, where there's this calling of a tax collector who's named Levi or Levi in Mark. And in the Gospel of Matthew, he's called Matthew. And so maybe that readers of the text thought, oh, maybe that's him inserting himself in the text or something like that. And that actually is the thing that persuades me that it's not that person named Matthew. Mm. Because if I like had actually encountered Jesus, I would I would use a source, even if it wasn't by an eyewitness, if it depended on other people's, because it's there, right? You use it. I would not, under any circumstances, tell the story of my own encounter with Jesus in somebody else's words. Hmm. And the Gospel of Matthew does that with Mark. And so, uh, yeah, take that or yeah. leave it. But it may be that it's somebody named Matthew and just the assumption was this, or maybe that was a deduction from the text. We that's we it's, hard, it's hard to know. We're not sure. But not only is Acts a continuation of the narrative in Luke by the same author or editor, you know, probably writing most of the stuff, but also it it picks up the narrative and and right. continues to give more you know it starts with like the resurrection appearances so what you're saying is when the author of acts works on the that second volume he is also playing with some of this apocalyptic expectation so so he got he has Jesus back on the scene at the beginning of acts before they start all their missionary journeys and all that stuff which is the bulk of of the book and so what does he have Jesus saying and doing that relates to this imminent expectation topic. Yeah, the the disciples ask, "Has a time come for you to restore the kingdom of Israel?" And it's basically, you know, don't don't. It's not none of your business. Is essentially the answer, right? So that's not for you to know. You know, the times that my father has planned. Uh, you are going to be my witnesses, and so you're going to do a whole thing, right? And this whole thing's going to unfold, and that's you know. The, the end times focused American churches have clearly missed the memo, right? From Jesus in that, you know, early chapter of Luke. It's like, not, you know, don't, don't even pay attention to this. Just focus on other stuff. That's not for you, you know. Okay. That's so interesting as, as a microcosm. I'm going to try and land this plane here, James, <laughs> because I, I think I can pull in some threads of what we've been talking about. So I'll start with just me as a person in the modern world. Maybe I have less problem with it today, but ask me 10 years ago. I'm I'm pretty anxious about the fact that it seems like Paul and maybe Jesus were wrong mm-hmm. about the end coming. That seems like a major knock on their credibility as right. sources for, I don't know, the most important doctrines in my life at this point or so, you know, however you want to say it. That's that causes anxiety mm-hmm. uh, that they could have been wrong about this. this. Is the whole thing bullshit? You know, whatever. Now, within the text itself, you've got. 
you know, so very early on in the Christian church, I mean, this is, we don't even have a canon yet of scripture. And we've got the author of Luke and Acts knowing that, recognizing it, and, and you know, either recalling other words of Jesus of Nazareth or uh, worst case, you might say, uh, sort of offering an alternate uh, view that is consistent with other parts of what Jesus said and did, uh, and certainly consistent still with things like the resurrection and, and whatever. This this moderating voice, right, of like, hey, guys, you're not going to you're not going to figure this. This is above your pay grade. Okay. And, and sort of like calling out maybe an unearned confidence in the flow of, of world history uh, and universe ending or, or whatever. It's so interesting. I've got this anxiety. That is the reason I have the anxiety is because I've been given a picture of the faith and the text that is fairly tidy uh, it, the, all the, all the bows are tied up pretty neatly. And then I get this incursion of what they were wrong about something as serious as this. And then it's like, they were internally working on this within two generations. I mean, like very, very early, historically speaking, they were actually dealing with this issue and, and wrestling with it with each other. And there were people going, guys, that's let's, let's hold yeah. our horses here. Even in Luke and Acts. Right. That is that's like a I don't know, that's kind of a new this is like a new lens for me right now. I haven't maybe maybe worked it all out here in the moment, but I have a suspicion that something in there ha- is like an antidote. There's like an antidote to the poison. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I can maybe maybe you have already worked out how that's supposed to work and you can help me. Yeah. And I've been the reason I've been writing that book uh, or wrote that book now um it's at least a draft of it's done, um, reconstructing your faith, is that biblical scholars, right, we go into this thinking the Bible's this thing that supports our faith, and the Bible just pushes at the boundaries of, you know, the framework that we've got it constrained within. And if we get beyond that and still have faith, and we still are Christians and whatever else, then we really should share more of our story and how we work through those things. So I was actually talking with my Sunday school class just, you know, this past Sunday about uh, the fact that Protestants have a long history of, you know, on the one hand, challenging like papal authority and yet not wanting to lose some other outside authority that provides that illusion of certainty. And so substituting, you know, essentially a paper pope, right? You know, the, um, you know, the Bible itself functions that way. And yet, if there's one thing that should be clear from the Bible, it's that human beings are foul, right? I mean, we've got more than enough uh, both explicit statements and examples to confirm that. And yet, the suggest well, but in this thing that they wrote, somehow it's you know we bypass all of that, and that doesn't. And so I remember once I had a student who you know kind of was coming from this perspective of you know, well, I have the Holy Spirit and I have the text. And so I know the truth and this. And and I said, have you read Galatians? Right there, you have these two people. They're as close to the point of origin as you can get. You've got Peter and Paul. And don't think you deny either of them had the Holy Spirit. And they're, they get in an argument. They get in a disagreement, right? And so what we have in these texts is, you know, on the one hand, stories that reflect them working this stuff out. Then we have voices that reflect different ways that people work things out. and. I, I think, you know, just 
connecting what I do with biblical studies and what you do with psychology, I think, you know, this is like right at that intersection. It shows just what a distortion of the Bible and of what it means to be human fundamentalism is or can be, Mm. that our faith is threatened by this thing that is at the core of the Bible, that human beings are fallible, right? Why did we think that was not the case, right? And then what do we do with the Bible? We turn it into an idol, right? This thing that's the work of human hands, and we make it essentially speak on God's behalf and a substitute for God. And the Bible also says a lot about idolatry, right? And so the thing that I, you know, I'm really quite becoming quite passionate about, you know, getting the word out about is that it's not just that, you know, there are problems and issues with, you know, Christian fundamentalism. It's that it is at odds with what the Bible actually says and what the Bible actually teaches at its most fundamental level. And I think more people need to be aware of that. And I think that will challenge, right? And that will shake the faith of some fundamentalists if they start poking at that. But I think it will actually help a lot of people who think that somehow they are being less Christian by not doing that fundamentalist thing, right? Because there are definitely, you know, at, at the very least, fundamentalist churches give the impression that that's the right way and really the only authentic way to do this Christian thing, this religion thing, and anything else you know, oh, well, maybe you you might still be saved, but you're going, you know, you're on a slippery slope there. It's like, yeah, they are, you know, I think the slippery slope probably is, you know, goes down on both sides from that place of that middle balanced place that the fundamentalists want to keep people away from, but is actually where, where we have to go if we're going to follow Jesus. Well, okay. So this is giving me some new language for an old topic. And the old topic is that old, old to me. I mean, I, and I've talked about it a lot that, you know, the sort of new atheists, the Richard Dawkins of the world, you might call them like the megachurch pastor atheists with their mm-hmm. alliterated, yeah, simplistic, right. you know, arguments. They disagree with the fundamentalists, but they agree on the rules of the game, which yeah. is that the text is either perfect and inerrant right. or it's all bullshit. Now, of course, they're, they're both wrong about that. That's the old that's the old topic. The new thing is like I'm thinking about how has the Bible and like actually how has especially the Hebrew Bible, which is more superstitious, kind of more anachronistic, more just feels disconnected from our modern world. How has that persisted for so long and continue to manage to like inform some of the best art that humans make, especially in the Western world? I'm sure you find the you know, the Bhagavad Gita working its way through like Indian art and stuff like that. But, you know, just in the West, in our cultures that are kind of coming out of that Judeo-Christian background. And I'm thinking like the Old Testament's got instances of like, it, its own multivocality is, is maybe goes part of the way to answering that question of how it has stayed so relevant to people who think really deeply about the world And I'm thinking about like there are passages and I'm not going to be able to give you chapter and verse in the Old Testament, especially in the story of Israel, where it's like, okay, a king sees a comet in the sky and that tells him, which he tells everybody else, Yahweh approves of this war, (laughs) you know, or there's something like that. There's these kind of like very, they feel very old to us and actually probably served to like prop up the military and economic power of the central authority to like wage conquest and all this stuff. But then later in the same text, you've got Isaiah and these other prophets 
who are directly challenging that kind of like, look, there's a sign in the sky that God likes what I'm doing with all my power. And they're saying, no, 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 what God, what the signs in the sky should be reminding you of is to like do justice, to care for the poor, to act like God acts towards God's people uh, in in love and mercy and kindness. And so even in that text, you've got people calling out these sort of bullshit appeals to authority on behalf of power, which are also in the text. And right there, you've got now that's like a microcosm for our entire political discourse in 2023 worldwide is like <laughs> the tension between those things was in there in uh, 1100 B.C., you know, or 750, whatever you want to date, whichever of these. You know, I don't know. Some of the prophets are more like 300, I think, and whatever. But you know what I'm saying? Like. That's maybe kind of a way in of how this, you know, getting rid of a a simplistic reading of the text and tradition and going, guys, there is like immense psychological and sociological and even political intrigue, detail, nuance, uh, back and forth. Again, it's this multivocality, but but kind of looking at it in, in the Old Testament. If there's something I want to push back on a little bit, it's Please. just the that, you know, I mean, I think. There certainly is a sense that I think most readers uh, steeped in sort of the European intellectual tradition and, you know, North American culture and things like that, and places where Christianity is predominated, that, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament feels more distant. And it is more distant in time, right? And it's more distant linguistically and culturally and in a variety of ways. And it reflects eras of, you know, kings and peoples and empires and conquest in a way that, you know, is different from what we get in the New Testament. And yet I do want to emphasize, as you started to, that the looking for signs and the pushing back on looking for signs, that's you know, not a Old Testament thing or New Testament thing. It's there in both. Even yeah. with the comment, I was like, you sure not thinking of Matthew chapters one and two? <laughs> no, right. Well, yeah, maybe that's the star <laughs> of Jesus, right? Star yeah. or something. Yeah. But I think, you know, you, you have, you know, the exclusion of Moabites from the assembly of God's people. But then you have the story of Ruth and a couple generations later, and oh, here we go. It's King David. And so there are people pushing at boundaries because this is human literature, right? This is literature of people thinking about God within the framework of their understanding of the world, of their faith. And you know, when you get to the New Testament where you have like unclean spirits causing illnesses, I'm not sure that from our perspective that's less superstitious, right? Sure. Yeah. But it's also important to realize that, you know, and I, I'm trying to remember where I said this recently, it may, it may have been again in my Sunday school class, right? That this, I think, no, actually it was at, um, I was at a thing called Starbase Indy, uh, which was a lot of fun, <laughs> you know, theology beer camp type of thing, except it yeah. was not a, a religiously focused thing. And so most people there were not coming from that background. But you know, these people were not, you know, simplistic fools, the way we sometimes modern people, particularly Richard Dawkins and folks like that, you know, the stereotype of the, the Bronze Age goat herders who do the blah, 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 Yeah. If you did not have modern meteorology and you saw a whirlwind come down from the sky and it demolishes your house and then goes back up and doesn't demolish your neighbor's house, your reaction would quite naturally be, if you don't have other information to make sense of this, some powerful being is really pissed off at me, Right. You know, I mean, it's a natural, it's not an unnatural way to explain this. No, it's, it's, we call it now superstitious, but if you lived then it would, it would be one of the plausible explanations you would have had at the time. Yeah. Right. And 
the fact, you know, and this gives provides, I think, a chance to point out that as we trace biblical literature, getting closer to our time, we see that they don't just remain with a particular like cosmology, like a view of the universe, right? You have the heavens above, you know, and the earth below. But by the time we get to the, um, you know, the New Testament, there's been, you know, progress in astronomy. There's this idea of multiple celestial spheres around the earth and things like that. And so we find Paul talking about the third heaven and things like that, right? And interesting. Evil powers yeah. that are the principalities and powers of the air, right? That rule over this because there's no longer an underworld per se. Like we've become the underworld because of the way the, the view of the universe has changed. Huh. And the fact that, you know, it doesn't make it less challenging to rethink things and say, well, can I still be a Christian within the framework of this other view of the universe? And if so, how? But I think there's at least something encouraging, recognizing that this is what people have been doing all along. And so there's nothing wrong with it. It's to be expected. And once we've done with the update, that doesn't mean we're done because science might make further progress. And it doesn't have to be something that's antithetical to the faith unless you make ancient, you know, pre-scientific ideas part and parcel of your faith and points of dogma. Faith for a lot of people means believing certain things are true, either without evidence, maybe even in spite of evidence to the contrary. And the faith that it, the New Testament emphasizes as something positive, it's about trust, right? And it's precisely an expression of your, your, your recognition of your own human inability to completely understand everything, to fix everything, to save yourself, to do, you know, and trusting. And that's yeah. where the emphasis is. And we've made it. Yeah. Oh, I can, I've got it. I've got more figured out than other people. And so I am more saved than them. And it's, it's so antithetical to what the message was then. And yet, again, there are large constituencies that are persuaded that this is doing the same thing, proclaiming the same gospel. Well, I like, I like how you brought in cosmology there. And I, I, I often, I don't think I've been told or taught to think of it that way as like, Paul reflects basically cosmology and, and astronomical advances, you know, in the intervening, say, 800 years or something like that. Let's use that as a lens to talk about the resurrection, the way the resurrection of Christ is talked about between Paul yeah. and yeah. the Gospels and, and the, the kind of entrance of what we what we today call like cosmic Christ language in John, in the first chapter of John. Yeah. Right. So can we can we use that sort of lens of like almost like science of the day and how those evolving understandings are like kind of placing the, the phenomenon of Jesus Christ in this like, oh, the picture's widening and now Christ widens to fit the picture is, is almost the way I'm kind of visualizing it. Yeah. And if if our view of God does not change as a result of our increased understanding of the universe, then you know, we're, we're just being deliberately, you know, stubborn in clinging to old ideas in a way that if we look at the Bible as a whole and trace the developments, we see is, you know, we can say it's unbiblical, right? Yeah, that's it's, crazy. I love that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like, do as I say, not as I do, right? Do what the biblical authors say, but don't do what we actually see them doing, <laughs> right? When we trace it, right? Yeah, right, right. So can you connect that for us? Like what, what are they, how are they doing that? Like do, if, I don't know right. if you have examples of yeah. passages that, that sort of reflect this, them updating their understanding as right. they're updating their understanding of other things. Right. I mean, even the fact, you know, one 
place where we can see post-biblical updating that a lot of people sometimes miss is that you know, often they think of the resurrection as something that happened to Jesus. But if you ask them about their hope for an afterlife, it's, I'm going to go to heaven when I die, right? And there's no focus on like resurrection of the body. If they are in a church that recites the creeds, they think that the resurrection is so important that you mention it twice, right? They miss that it's, you know, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come as an affirmation about what happens to everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what the resurrection meant for the early Christians. And that's why for Paul, he's so sure that this is going to happen soon, because there's no expectation prior to that, that one person would enter the age to come, the life of the resurrection, prior to everyone else. And so he talks about Jesus as the first fruits from the dead. And when I talk about this with people, you know, I say, you know, the that way of thinking that in terms of resurrection, it may not be a bad thing that we find that that's, you know, it's hard to make sense of that within our own scientific framework, right? On the other hand, one of the things that was in danger of being lost when thinkers in a Greek context were moving in the direction of a more spiritual afterlife was like things like the goodness of creation, right? That being a a bodily human being comes to be viewed negatively. And the church certainly does go that route, right? And that's sort of problematic from that perspective. And so I think the key thing is to recognize that we're always going to need to rethink. There's no definite, you know, this is the right way to do it and the right conclusion to draw. All throughout history, including within the Bible, but also then subsequently about the Bible, people debated and drew conclusions. And it could just possibly have been the case that some other viewpoint might have won out in those arguments. Also to make sure we identify what was it that this text, this idea was trying to convey and make sure that we're listening to that voice, right? So if you want to do Christian theology, you need to be in conversation with those sources. You don't defer to them just because they were there first, but you recognize they were there, right? (laughs) This is early stuff. And this should be part of anything that wants to call itself a Christian reflection on the meaning of life. The nature of but human Paul, existence. interestingly, was not there, and he feels comfortable kind of talking through it and almost thinking differently about, you know, resurrection. And like, so I, I mentioned to you before we started, I've been reading slowly John Barton's uh, History of the Bible, which is just basically a, a summary of historical critical uh, consensus on Old and New Testament kind of the state of scholarship as of a couple years ago. And I just was reading this part about resurrection and how when Paul talks about the resurrection and we get his words first chronologically, he does a kind of a cosmic Christ thing. It's like a a spiritual body. And Barton says, it sounds like a deliberate contradiction in terms. How can a body be spiritual? Paul is, Paul is kind of trying to ride this line of, Like not really a resuscitation of Jesus of Nazareth's physical body. Paul doesn't mention the women who are witnesses to it at all. He's got kind of a different thing. And then here comes the gospel writers later for the most part. And they're describing something that's more like the resuscitation of a corpse. And so I I don't know if you want to like, so that's a multivocality to continue to use this word, different voices kind of, kind of intention with each other. Maybe can you bring that into this conversation? Yeah. So there, you know, and it's interesting that we get this between Paul and Luke, because Luke on the whole, like admires Paul is, you know, gives a lot of attention to him in his second volume. Yeah. 
the the Last Supper account seems you know it's closer to the um, the Lord's Supper material in First Corinthians than the other two the other Gospels, and yet Paul says in First Corinthians fifteen, flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom of God, and yet in the resurrection account in Luke we get. You know, see that I'm not a ghost. You know, see that in basically touch me and see that I have flesh and bone. You know, unlike what, unlike a ghost, right? And so, sure, bone, blood. You know, it's not all the same language, but it's it's different, right? They're both one is like flesh, and the other is like yeah, flesh doesn't inherit, right? And so Paul, but Paul will continue this language of at least the the body, the resurrection of the body, right? He's recognizing that flesh may have too many negative connotations, and what he means by that may not be this substance that can be separated from spirit, which is a different substance in that sort of dualistic way. Uh, there were thinkers who were thinking in those terms, but within the Jewish tradition, there's much more the view of a human being as a psychosomatic unity, right? Um, an animated body rather than an incarnate soul, if you want that way. Hmm. And so he may be using flesh as a way of talking about, you know, that aspect of human hu- human existence as a whole, in as much as it finds itself in its weakness, its rebellion against God, things like that. Common topics for Paul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he also wants to affirm that there is something, you know, the, the aim, you know, if you say that it's better to be disembodied, that seems to be saying that, you know, God made a mistake making us bodily. Mm-hmm. And so he's not happy to go there either. And so he is, he's trying to walk this line that is building bridges between his own Jewish tradition and the assumptions of a lot of his non-Jewish audience. Yeah, he mostly preached to Gentiles. Yeah. It's not as though Paul is the first person doing this, right? There were a lot of people. This is an era in which you know, Judaism as a tradition and Greco-Roman culture and philosophy have had opportunity to intersect and interact, right? And so people have been thinking about this and wrestling with the connection between the two. And that's part of the process too, right? Uh, we have all this. We have new terminology, right? We have new concepts that are appearing in the New Testament. And often they are there not because they come by some divine revelation, but because that's the language that people are speaking. Those are the things people are thinking about. That's the terminology that's in use. And treating those things that are just how you'd you'd explore these subjects in that context as though they have a once-for-all permanence of validity to them, mistakes what human language does, mistakes how human communication works. Yeah, it does. But back to that practical thing, it's like yeah. it does seem to be also true that large and successful human movements require a pretty straightforward story around which everybody can gather. I mean, yeah. just think about like Marxism. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like yeah. that's a pretty simple story about, yeah. you know, the means of production and the flow of capital. And you then, mm-hmm. you then, you know, if you're a real Marxist, you're going to try and reduce every event down to those few factors and tell the story that way. Political parties are that way too, uh, you know, con- you know, religions. So it's, yeah, there's this tension between, I mean, that's really, that is the tension that creates, that created this podcast and the, all these circles of, textual and theologically interested people that I find compelling who are struggling with the the complexity and the the reality, which is complex. But there will always be someone in a marketplace of ideas who is willing to tell people that it's actually quite simple and they will be rewarded with attention, prestige, probably money yeah. for doing so. 
and we will always not be rewarded, which is why I'm glad I have a therapeutic practice to pay the bills. <laughs> yeah. And I think on the, on the one level, there's the, um, you know, the famous, you know, the, the story in the Brothers Caravazzo, the Grand Inquisitor, right, where it's like, you gave people freedom and they didn't want the burden of freedom. And yeah. so they came to me to answer all their questions simply and to give up their freedom, which was a burden for them. Right. Yep. And so I want, on the one hand, to hold on to this idea that Jesus is actually expecting more of us. Right. And that when we go to those other people who think that they are Jesus representatives in our time and yet are the, the kinds of teachers that tickle the ears that, you know, that Jesus warned and the New Testament authors warned about, I think we have to hold on to that. And yet we also, I think we need to find the way to tell the simple story as well, because there is a simple story, right? And there's, and maybe multiple stories, but we, I think there are so many people for whom they've gotten to this point just recently, and they're still traumatized because they were brought up to understand things in a different way. And so it's still, you know, they're still sort of post-evangelical, post-deconstruction, post-catastrophic mm-hmm. collapse of faith. and. You know, they're spiritual, but not religious. They're Christian, but not that kind of Christian. And one of the things that I'm hoping to, you know, do more and more of is how do we tell stories, right? Not just one story, right? Jesus didn't just tell one story, right? He thought you need more than one story to get at some of these things. Uh, Sometimes stories are in tension with one another. But what stories do we tell that explore this in a positive way, right? So you can say, here's how you could think about God in this, right? In a way that doesn't just pander to the need for certainty. And I have some ideas, but I'm sure there are others who are better storytellers than I am who might even do a better job of this than I would. Well, I think you've actually done a pretty good job of laying out a lot of the way that you think about that. And that that's really kind of the theme, I think, from today's conversation. And it's actually probably a pretty good, good place to wrap it up there. Like, you know, there are, even within the text itself, from which all the oversimplified Christianities that many of us have encountered, most of us have encountered, and most of us have been, you know, lived through and and been enmeshed in, even within the text from which those oversimplified traditions come, uh, there is nuance, disagreement, different voices kind of arguing with each other. Um, It's almost a trope now that that's the Jewish way of of doing religion, Uh, certainly, you know, and we get that in the the Talmud and sort of the rabbinical Judaism that comes later after the the New Testament era. Uh, But it's in the New Testament, too. And Pete Enns has done some good work sort of calling, uh, bringing up like the intertestamental literature and and making connections there between like that's kind of the middle ground between Old and New Testaments. But it shows you what a smooth ramp there actually is between them and that there's not a lot of discontinuity there. That that process has been going on the whole time. I would argue that process is universal in human religion from the beginning. Uh, and it, you know, we get kind of primed to be let down by that fact. Um, but I do think there's a, there's a turning and there can be a sort of a second commitment to living a life of faith in light of that uncertainty aware that we are at a particular time and place and we're playing our own part in a very long and and never-ending dialogue between faithful people who are trying to love God and love neighbor. I mean, that's my favorite simplistic version of it is love God, love neighbor, right? Yeah. And, and and Jesus gives us that. Um, and so does Paul, actually, in, in a couple spots, uh, according to my recent reading of John Barton yesterday morning. <laughs> Uh, and so I, 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 there is a call there, I, and and I think you and I share a hope that there will be 
larger movements or connected smaller movements that can kind of galvanize around uh, an approach sort of like that and and reclaim a really it is a biblical faithfulness frankly i think that's kind of your argument and i i appreciate the argument I, and it's honestly i'm feeling encouraged yeah and i'm i'm encouraged too i just you know I also know that we need to sort of talk about these things and you know encourage those who are you know discouraged and are not connecting uh hear from lots of people in different parts of the world where they're like well if only there's there's some other people i could meet with and talk with these things about and if we can give enough people the courage to voice these things then i'm pretty sure a lot of them will then find oh yeah i'm not the only one in this part of the world i'm not the only person in this town and whatever I think it's interesting, you know, coming back full circle to where we started, because we weren't talking before we got into the Bible, we talked about, you know, fandom and stuff like that, mm. and theology beer camp. And uh, this weekend, I was at uh, Starbase India, as I mentioned, and talking about this intersection, too. And one of the things that came up was the fact that there are some fans for whom, you know, if you suggest there's any contradiction over these, you know, 60 years of uh, Doctor Who or of Star Trek or whatever, then you are... You're, you're, you're not a real fan, right? And there are other ways of being a fan than just saying rah, rah, rah. There are no contradictions in the story, right? We can yeah. inhabit them. We can value them. We can also poke fun at them and say, Hey, there's, and they say there's complexity and there's, and enjoy even, you know, doing fun things when we see these tensions within this um, universe that nonetheless, you know, we, we find it gives us meaning, right? And we can inhabit it in our imagination and express ourselves in relation to it and things like that. And while, Religious fandom and sci-fi fandom are not exactly the same thing. Um, I, I do think there are parallels that sometimes can can be instructive in that way. And uh, the possibility of being a fan and yet not uncritical about that tradition um, and the story and still finding a way to appreciate it and even inhabit it um, and find meaning in it. Um, I think there there are some parallels that are useful. You are you are very accurately describing my Beach Boys fandom. Because I go through every decade and man, there are some gems and there are some stinkers. And that's part of the fun is being able to, you know, talk through and distinguish between the two and what led to this. And when did Brian get his mojo back for a minute? And, you know, all that stuff is like that doesn't show that I care less about them. It shows how much I care about them. Yeah. And in fact, that I think makes a really great point about the Bible, right? Because the people who think that they are the diehard fans and they love everything are probably the ones who only know the greatest hits. All right? they want is Kokomo and Good Vibrations. Get them out of here. I, yeah. So they know the memory <laughs> verses, right? The yeah. equivalent in the song, right? The, and they don't know the deep cuts from the album, and they don't know the deep cuts from Leviticus or from the Book of Revelation or Jude or whatever. Yeah. And there, too, I think there are parallels. And getting to know the text will make things difficult for your faith, but in ways that could lead to really serious spiritual growth, I think. Well, and that's what, and that's the connection that with existential psychotherapy is that there actually is life. You know, it, it's a commitment to reality as we can best piece it together, and and I think what we've seen in the in talking through the text is that the writers of the text are engaged in that in their best picture of reality, piecing it together. How does Yahweh relate to this? How does Jesus of Nazareth? How does the Christ relate to this? Are are emerging understanding of reality led by the Holy Spirit, they would say. Uh, but I don't, I don't actually see any contradiction in that. Like, I, why can't the Holy Spirit also be the thing that's leading science? Like, I, there's no, to me, that's, I don't have like a fortress wall put up between God and the world, you know? So, so that to me is, 
can work seamlessly. I recognize there are also passages that would lend to, if they're not for us, they're against us. And we have that put in the mouth of Jesus, whether or not he said that as well. And, you know, so we can, anyway, we can go on and on, but I, I like that fandom lens. That is, a, it's fun to kind of, to, to end where we began. James, we will have a link to the book in the show notes. Uh, any, anything else, any other links to like social media that you'd like people to see? Yeah, I'm I'm online as religion prof in most places. I mean, you can find my blog by typing that in. Religion prof is one word. You can find me on um, the platform formerly known as Twitter, uh-huh. um, and in plenty of other places. And I, I consider these things interesting and important. And so, you know, connect with me there. And if you have questions or you know wondering about how to work these things out, I may have shared things already. And if I haven't, uh, leave a comment, and I'll, I probably will at some point. Well, and sorry to put you on the spot, but I I can invite you to the you have permission uh, Facebook group. And if you're okay with it, we can do a thread where if people want to ask some yep. follow-up questions, yep. if you don't mind commenting in there. Not at all. I did an AMA on uh, Reddit at one point, you know, yeah. pretty active in the academic biblical uh, subreddit there. Okay. Um, lo- love those sorts of things. Great. I'll, I'll add you to the group. And then when this airs, uh, we'll, we'll put up a thread there and, and we'll appreciate your in- involvement. If you want to get in the Facebook group, you got to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. That's the last thing I'll say about that. Uh, wow. Really just James, thank you so much. I, I get a little nervous is the wrong word. Uh, it's not like I'm self-loathing, but I get a little like, I don't know, a biblical topic or whatever. Uh, but really I was, uh, I was, I wouldn't say surprised, but just really pleased, um, where this went and, and helping me kind of make some new connections around this stuff. It's, it's a conversation I think I need to listen back to, Uh, later when it comes out just to sort of cement some of that stuff so very very grateful i I found it super valuable i know listeners have as well yeah and so did i so real privilege talking with you thoroughly enjoyed our conversation and hope it won't be our last 